This series is dedicated to the Dakota. We offer honor to those who care for the land on which our building and its community reside. Thank you. Welcome back to the Students' Co-op Memory Journal podcast. It's November 28th, and this is Episode 5. This time we'll conclude our three-part series covering Ian's and Mark's time at the co-op through most of the 90s. Let's do it to it. Uh, starting with the stucco, the stucco looked rough in the mid-90s, and, and there were places where the building envelope was letting water in. I lived in the bedroom that is on the right corner as you're walking down the third floor hallway. It's a strange bedroom because it has two or maybe even three closets uh, at, at the wall that faces University Avenue. And those closets were always damp. And so water was coming in somehow. I just put up with it. Today, being a little older and wiser, I would have sort of made a point that we had to fix it. But at the time, I just felt like it was part of living in an old building. And the stucco, there was places that you could see that it was cracking. So it looked bad. And the windows, I remember at one point we called some window guys and said we needed new windows. And when they got there, they realized we just needed some of the inserts, you know, some some of the parts of the windows. And they were disappointed because they uh, were not going to be able to sell us all new windows. So there was some window repair that took place. I did a fair amount of research and found out that the manufacturer of the windows and maybe went and got some parts. And for a little while there, I mean, maybe I owned that little project, worked with a maintenance manager, perhaps maintain the screens on a few windows or fix a, a particular problem. And just this last couple of years, I've installed kind of on my own windows in our 110-year-old house. So I've been really in window mode for the last couple of years who knows, maybe some of that goes back to when I kind of did some of that stuff at the students' co-op. As so many things in my life go back to the students' co-op, I was there for 10 years. A lot of interpersonal things, maintenance things, some of the skills I learned as far as you know, financial management. Were you guys there when the facade fell off, which Captain Tony claimed to witness and just barely escape with his life? <laughs> um, I remember that being an issue. You're talking about right over the porch, right? Yeah, the part with the licking stick. It looks like fake brickwork. Yeah, right. I remember that being an issue. We did spend a lot of money on fixing that at one point, bolting it back on, or um, I don't have as good a memory of that as I do of some other things. There was a guy living in the room at the end of the extension, uh, right by the parking lot. This was a guy that I knew from outside the co-op as well. And late one night, I got a knock on my door. In his room, he had fallen and basically put his arm through the window in his room, broke the window, but more importantly, really cut up his arm bad. There was a lot of blood. Somebody came and said, oh, you know, can you drive drive him to the emergency room, which I did. I ended up spending really all night. I think we got back maybe six or seven in the morning. That's probably my most dramatic window story I have for you. Thank you for that. Okay. Some of the some of the sashes, to be frank, when we were living there, were just like falling right out of the window openings. And we were like, what are these windows? Why are they so bad? And we were trying to figure out where that came from. And it's not to put blame on anyone. Uh, we, actually, you may be happy to learn that we ended up being the generation or two or three that finally got the windows restored to their historic appearance, as well as finally get the stucco redone, which is so cool. It, it took longer project. than you can imagine. Oh, I bet. Wow. 
when we were there, one of the big projects every fall, and it, and I remember Hansel being on top of this, one of our good friends, and putting up plastic over the windows in the living room. One of those things that we did probably every year in the fall to control those drafts that you're talking about. When we were doing that before the windows were replaced, you know, the wind was blowing through the house and you could see the plastic bubbling out and, and people were wearing scarves and hats in the meeting room. And that's when we were like, okay, we got to do something about this. Oh man. Steam heat is really a bear to try and maintain. And, and it results in uneven heating, you know, up in far corners of the house. Some rooms would become way over humidified if that little bullet that let out the steam was constantly letting out steam. And, yes. you know, I, I, I had that issue in my room. My room was the single right over the boiler room on the first floor across from the bathroom. So I received that hot steam right out of the boiler really quickly. <laughs> there were times when I, I had a really hot and humid room and I'd have to open up the door to try to dissipate the heat. And sometimes a little bullet would blow out of the radiator and then steam would be going all over in the room. And if you tried to put it back in without gloves on, you'd burn your hand. And yes, you know. my, my roommate, Charlie as maintenance manager tried really hard to understand balancing the steam system. We somehow ended up with this, this sheet guide. Someone had hand drawn it. It was a really fun zine kind of hmm. aesthetic. And it was all about how to go into each room and how to balance the boiler system so that uh, really? things were not unevenly heated yeah oh cool if it was a crack in the stucco that was creating your wet closets i don't know Ian. i think it was the i think it was the stucco is what we found out yeah because okay. there used to be no flashing up there in the, in the 40s and that was a design mistake of the original fraternity so water would build up and crack open that area when we originally were getting quotes for the stucco someone said well i can do a historic thing uh, because back in the day, they would have used copper flashing. And even though it's not accurate to the appearance, hopefully that will satisfy the um, Heritage Preservation Commission and, and you could get away with this because it would look right. But ultimately, I think it was going to be very expensive. Anyway, um, I was told by a resident that there was some kind of squatter or hippie situation where the house became like a hoarder repository filled with furniture and detritus. And after that, there was a massive cleanup period involving throwing much of it away. There was always a lot of old furniture and, you know, people would find it and drag it into the building. But I don't know that that's so unusual for a bunch of college students. I don't remember it going with a, a squatter situation or incident, but there were constantly people collecting things and leaving them and moving out and not taking them. I ended up collecting a lot of stuff while I was there for sure. I mean, mostly bicycle related. And yeah. whole, at one point, the whole half of the dining room down in the basement was filled with bicycles that I was collecting. I feel really bad about that. Oh, um, that was you. Wait. Yeah. Did you leave a bunch of stuff there too? It doesn't matter. I mean, we used a lot of it. I mean, there were, there were frames everywhere. We started building bikes. It, it became <laughs> a, a big thing. Well, okay. I would have had something to do with it. You know, I would have gotten rid of my stuff when I left. Uh, but if other people were like, no, no, you know, I'll, you know, take over from here. People would have added to it after I left. But I certainly had a lot to do with that. I mean, there was one point when <laughs> I just had, I had a tarp covering all of these bikes and 
you know, I had a little shop area where I was working on bikes and I had a, a trainer bike that was set up down there. I was riding in place, you know, for exercise. And I mean, at one place I even had my guitars hanging on the wall down there. I totally had like moved into the, to the dining room. And, <laughs> and uh, it's embarrassing to think back on, but like I said, you know, people kind of appreciated getting their bike worked on and, and stuff. So I guess it was okay, but there was a really cool mural on the wall. There was one part of the mural that said life's entangled frames. And maybe that was a pun or a play on words. Frame could have been like framework or viewpoint or picture frame or bicycle frames. I mean, I remember, I think I even took a picture of that part of the mural with a bunch of my bicycle frames hanging from the ceiling. There were tires and there were wheels and there were frames hanging from this structure I hope that we can get some of your photos of any kind of murals that have happened in the house, because I think they've changed and, and it'd be great to see what was happening on the wall. You walls. know, who else was really good at murals was our friend Jeff, who was the recruitment manager. Going back to the conversation we had a week ago, Jeff was a really talented cartoonist and he painted murals on the walls of the co-op and he had these little characters that would they were cartoon characters, not that different from like say the peanuts or something. It was almost like a cartoon strip in a way. And, and Jeff painted these in the hallways. He owns a it's really cool business on Lake Street now called uh, Urban Forage uh, Winery and Cider House. And if you go in there, like if you have an eye for it, you'll oh yeah, I recognize that little cartoon character that was at the co-op, or I recognize Jeff's printing, of course. So that's kind of where, in my mind, where the murals live on is at Urban Forage, at the intersection of Hiawatha and Lake. I don't think there was any murals when I moved in. I remember a woman named Anne painted a mural in the kitchen. I think that started it. And I think she worked on the big mural in the dining room. And then I think Rich, he actually wrote those words, life's entangled frames. Really? That, yes, that's my memory. Oh, how cool. I did Great memory. Rich. Thank you. So do you remember who, if anyone, painted the Dr. Seuss mural in the boiler room hallway? I should look. I Actually, I think he might be called Dr. Zoyce, not Dr. Seuss, as we pronounce it. But anyway. That's a good question, because I haven't thought about that in a long time, but I can totally see it in my brain now. I don't know why Micah Garlic Miller comes to mind. He was a Canadian grad student that lived there for a while, and he was in a band called The Strike. Very creative guy, not your typical engineer at all. And uh, he was also very politically aware and super friendly. And, and there might be a signature on there. Yeah, uh, we can ask Jeff. He will remember for sure if he did it, but he might even know who did it if he didn't. So we should we could we should check with Jeff. Thank you for for that. So I want to talk about the house landline phone. Who answered that? <laughs> um, whoever wanted to. There was three, right? Yes, there were three. Totally. There was one first floor, second floor and third floor. Three, three, one, ten, seventy eight. Was that first floor? Sounds right. <laughs> That was my number for 10 years. Um, <laughs> I used it as my number for a while before we finally it, was I right? was it, got rid of it. Was it 331-1078? I used one of the house phones. The one that was remaining was the one on the second floor by the manager computer. I found it. It was 612-331-1078. Wow. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I lived in this single right across from the bathroom on the first floor, and the house phone was right outside my door. So oftentimes people would come 
into that back section of the house and close the door behind them because, you know, there was a door that went into that extension. They would go there for privacy to have conversations from everybody else, not knowing that I'm in my room there and I can pretty much hear exactly what they're saying. Wait a you know? minute. I think there was still the first floor phone. I feel like I remember that being removed or something like right around the 2010 era. Well, um, I usually just tuned it out, but <laughs> um, I, re I remember getting particularly irritated with, with one person who would have very loud, long conversations, late hours. <laughs> um, I remember one other time uh, somebody, <laughs> somebody was, was having a conversation on the phone and we had a, a co-op who loved to play practical jokes on people. And he came in to the first floor bathroom, passed the person on the phone and went into the bathroom. And uh, he proceeded to take out a jar and fill it with water and then, <laughs> sorry, slowly pour it into the toilet, <laughs> you know, as if he's relieving himself. And he did this for like a minute and a half straight. <laughs> While the person right outside the door is on the phone trying to have a conversation. And... <laughs> That's so immature and very funny. Yes. This kind of gets into a, a story about a house maintenance. One fall, maybe October, November, and the, the boiler was not kicking on. So we were all like, why isn't the boiler kicking on? We, it's getting cold. We need heat. And so we were all getting ready to call the boiler people, $100 an hour or whatever. And we had a couple of people who lived there at the time who were pretty savvy with mechanical stuff. And they were like, no, we can figure this out. Let's work on it. And followed the wire down from the thermostat on the second floor towards the boiler in the basement. And they got to the phone on the first floor. And this wire that came down right next to the phone stopped. And it was twisted into a bow and made into a little art project. Somebody had been on the phone there and they were doodling with the with a wire that was next to the phone thinking that it didn't do anything and it didn't show up as a problem until the heat didn't come on in the fall and uh <laughs> that's awesome as a result we created this little award called the golden screwdriver oh, and there was a little trophy great. on the wall kind of down in the basement next to the kitchen with their names they were the first and second recipients of the golden screwdriver award and uh, we'd occasionally give out the golden screwdriver award to somebody who solved the maintenance problem. That's great. Thank you. That's a great story. I was just curious about either the tool room or the laundry room. I had a, a, a really nice pair of pants uh, stolen from the laundry room. That really bummed me out. Oh, that sucks. Maybe it's time to go to social things. So we're not yet partying like it's 1999 or using cable internet speeds. What was popular <laughs> entertainment at the time? In the evenings, people were always watching TV. There was actually surprisingly little conflict about what to watch. I think people just watched popular stuff, sitcoms, things that were on the news, PBS. Were there uh, fans of Twin Peaks or its unofficial spinoff, The X-Files? I think The X-Files might have been on sometime. Twin Peaks was early 90s. It was before I yeah, got... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I don't remember people having this 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 thing that some houses have where everybody gets together at whatever it is, you know, Thursday night and watches The Simpsons or something like that. I, I don't remember that. I, I don't know if you do, Mark. But in general, TV was always on in the evening and people would stop by and hang out for a while and chat. And it was kind of the... It, 
you know, that and the kitchen were the social centers of the of the co-op. I spent a lot of time in the TV lounge. Uh, my friend Nick did also. So there was just that one big television in the corner. It was, it was the biggest TV I had ever lived with. And importantly, um, it had cable, which I didn't grow up with or have in any other part of my life. So, you know, the plethora of channels, including MTV, that was all new to me. I don't think really people had televisions in their rooms. I had one. Uh, Nick had one. I don't think either of us used our TVs very much in our rooms. We we were in the, the TV room. Yeah. What and kind of music did you like? Did either of you like to go to concerts? Oh, boy. Oh yes. Boy. I mean, music was a huge part of my life. It still is. I, I have some very visceral memories of some, some fun musical events happening at the co-op. The Minnesota Orchestra just cold called the students co-op and said, we're trying to get a bunch of people to this concert. We've got these free tickets. Do you want to come? And whoever answered the phone said yes. And so a whole group <laughs> of us, maybe 10 people who were, for all practical purposes, kind of strangers, went to the Minnesota Orchestra for this free concert in 1992. The first big house field trip or whatever you want to call it that we did like within a week that I moved in, that was really cool. I remember that being a really fun way to start out uh, the co-op experience for me. Um, that was, you know, I kind of have a little bit of a musical uh, slant on it. I listened to music in my room. I remember I bought a cranberry CD and listened to it so much that somebody else in the co-op was sort of convinced that that was my favorite band. Like even years later, she would make comments about the cranberries. I do like the cranberries myself. (laughs) They're a great band. I wish that I would have gone to more live music. I I went to some. Uh, Music wasn't huge for me. You know, Mark's leaving out that he plays guitar. Mark, you spent a lot of time in coffee shops around the university and and around the Twin Cities listening to guitar. Yeah, and that, that kind of really started for me at the co-op. I may have mentioned before that I went to work at the New Riverside Cafe on the West Bank, a magnet uh, for all sorts of uh, local musicians mostly. And, um, and I had some favorite musicians there and I, I started learning some songs and and then uh, collaborating just a little bit with uh, a few of the people that lived there as I was learning some things. There were some very talented musicians that flowed through the house for sure. Or was there a piano in the living room? Yeah, there was a piano. Um, I never play piano myself, but I remember (laughs) trying to work up a a duet with another person who did play piano. Um, It didn't go so well. A person had arranged to have her friend come play saxophone in the living room. He played a solo solo instrumental version of, uh, well, it doesn't have lyrics, but I think John Coltrane's Take the Eight Train. And then one of the co-opers who happened to be, I think, our I don't know if he was our president at the time, but Sean Pratt. I didn't know this at the time, but he was a really good drummer. And he was like, hey, do you mind if I sit in? And so Chris Thompson on saxophone and Sean Pratt playing drums did this wonderful improv right in the living room. And I was just like, wow, that was so cool. And that has stuck with me for many years. I I still bring that up to Christopher whenever I see him. That was way before he ever recorded with Mason Jennings or that was before he, he toured around the world with the Glenn Miller Orchestra, you know, 
he's a really talented musician, but he, in his college years, he played at the co-op. That's and, fantastic. Yeah. So, and I, and I became very close friends with a guy named Ben Erickson, who um, had a very good friend who lived at the co-op too. Ben worked with me at Freewheel Bike Shop and Ben was a really good guitar player. Really, really good. I mean, a lot younger than me, but he knew way more and turned me on to a bunch of Dylan stuff. I, I never knew about Mark Bolin or T-Rex before I talked to Ben. Barb Myers, she was living at the co-op and she's gone on to have a really successful musical career here locally in the Twin Cities. She and I kind of did some things down in that. Uh, there was a, ma- a music practice space in the basement. There was the pottery studio for a while. It was wow. kind of a pan- it was a pantry off of the dining room. Yes, we um, actually used that space as a mini bicycle repair room. Oh, really? As, okay. As well as a place where, yeah, a lot of music got recorded there too. Really? That's so cool. Well, yeah. Barb and I, I remember we exchanged some songs or did some duets down there. She wasn't really musical. That wasn't her focus at the time, but she had had a lot of training in her younger years when she was maybe in junior high or high school. And, um, and so she could just pick it up. And she was, she was really good. And then years later, I mean, she moved up, I think, to the North Shore of Minnesota and she started working at a radio station and then got a musical career going. And now she's very much in demand. She plays all over the Midwest. Well, actually, there was, there was two pianos in the house, right? Because there was parts of one nailed to the wall by the TV. Yes. Actually, totally. That good point, Ian. That's is right. They're still there. It was the, whatever you call it, the soundboard with the strings, you know, yeah. it was, it was sort of an installation bolted to the wall. Yeah. That was there before I got there. I remember I bought my first guitar from a, from a co-op or also a guy named Dave. He moved out because he was accepted to medical school. He sold me his uh, Yamaha guitar and that was kind of, I used that to, to learn some songs in my room. Uh, my friend Phil Haywood, who still plays around the Twin Cities a lot, lives over on the on the West Bank and plays in coffee shops a lot. And he he had a gig at the Riverside Cafe, so I'd go and listen to him all the time. And he taught me some of his songs, and I still play them all the time. And um, so yeah, he came over to the co-op. I think we had uh, he kind of gave me some lessons. My friend Annie Anakin came over, taught me one of her songs in the basement. I remember working up. Uh, a couple versions of Mason Jennings songs in the basement and playing them at all hours. People were very patient. I remember one guy, there was, there was one fellow, his name was Lauren. And I remember him sitting on a chair on top of one of the tables that was in the dining room area. And he, uh, and he played stairway to heaven. Seriously. It wasn't campy or anything like that. He was going for it. And I, I, I remember. Excellent. You know, respecting that a lot. I wasn't into Zeppelin at the time, though I've gotten very, very into Led Zeppelin. It took me a while this for them to sink in, but once they did, I was like, wow, I can really appreciate their musicality. Oh. Holy buckets. I, I can too. I mean, there's a lot you kind of have to look past, you know, the commercialism and I don't know, the mythology and the, but they were important in the pantheon. I think, you know, they definitely defined an era of the seventies mostly and people kind of come back to them. But at the time I, I really didn't want a whole lot to do with classic rock or things outside of my folk genre. I was really into folk music. I should send you a link to um, a, a friend of mine lived at the co-op was president of the co-op for a bit, Zachary tower. And yeah. I remember him teaching himself banjo in the co-op. Really? Oh, wow. and, now, and then he went on to, after the co-op band called um, 
compost sleeping bag play in a bunch of blues and folk festivals. And one of the groups was called the Common Ground Company, but it's bluegrass. And it's, it's really, it was really outstanding music. What were your hobbies? I know that Mark, you were doing bikes and music and stuff. Yeah. One thing I remember uh, later in my time at the co-op, there was a PS1 in the kitchen. And some guys would uh, play that. And that was fun. I, I I didn't play it much myself, but I've always liked video games. I like being around them. And that made me happy to go down in the kitchen and make something and have people playing video games. And That's uh, fun. Yeah. Video yeah. games in the kitchen is a good idea. Yeah. It was great. I mean, it just brought a positive energy to, to that that space. And I remember the machine, the, the console itself was old or had been dropped or something. So the only way to get it to play the CDs was to put the CDs in and then set it upside down. So I always remember walking in there and seeing that thing upside down in the kitchen. Hansel would play that a lot. It, it may have been Hansel's, but I remember it was down there and uh, lots of different people played it. I, I didn't even remember that it existed until you mentioned this. Um, <laughs> Did you or anyone try to introduce the co-op to anything from your family traditions, uh, recipes, um, family songs, anything like that? You know, people would cook for their friends. And at some point, I was never a member, but there was sort of a, a meal club. Do you remember this, Mark? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Brian Hall was really uh, a big um, contributor to the meal club. He made outstanding meals, like really, he did, anything he did was outstanding for, for sure. I could go on and on. We could have a whole episode about how, what an amazing person he was. Like initially he he was, um, I think, uh, a religious studies kind of person and, and was very close to graduation, but then dropped out and, you know, went a long stretch of time before he re-enrolled as an, as an engineering student. And then when he re-enrolled, he um, got really involved in the electric car project at the University of Minnesota and toured all over the upper Midwest, maybe even went to a national competition with this um, solar powered car, not electric solar powered car. So that was part of his, his uh, undergraduate, uh, maybe final project, but he, he graduated with an engineering degree and got an engineering job somewhere um, out state. But unfortunately we just fell out of touch despite being very close friends for a long time. He was an amazing cyclist, really opened up my mind to other kinds of bicycles, other ways of doing things and using bicycles for function. When I kind of got into cycling, it was mostly for sport, but he got a, a, a big utilitarian trailer and then he helped found this bike company that was a, a recumbent tricycle company based in North, Northeast Minneapolis called Earth Cycles. And he helped build these things. These are like 3,000, 4,000, maybe even $5,000 tricycles. He, his partner in that company was a, a person named Sean Bjoralt, a kind of a third person that was something involved named Jeffrey, Je Jeffrey James Caswell, who would come around the, the co-op once in a while. And he was another very, very interesting, super smart person that had his own bicycle designs. And Brian and I kind of shared uh, a lot of the space for bike repair down in the basement. And he was the maintenance manager for a long time. I want to say at least a couple of years. We had great levels of patience with, with people who had different abilities than his or different outlooks than his. He was a fantastic co-oper. But then he went back to school and got a degree, which I always really was in awe of because once you kind of get out of the, out of school and you start living your life, it's awful hard to get back into being a student and 
had the discipline to follow through on that. And he certainly did. Do you, do you remember anyone having uh, like family associated with the house, you know, brothers, sisters, parents coming over and kind of being friends of the students co-op? Jeff's sister yes. stayed at the co-op yeah. uh, several times and eventually moved in. Yep. And there were three brothers, the, the Leonard family, you know, one brother moved in and then the next brother moved in, the next brother moved in. And I think at one point, all three of them were living there and <laughs> they were fantastic, you know, um, and very, very social. And they attracted a lot of their friends too. They were kind of coming from uh, Western suburbs. I think Wyzetta. Did people try to have animals in the house? Were people still trading fish? No. I personally speaking for myself, I was kind of, I, I kept my family very separate from the co-op. I, I don't think my parents ever came and visited once. I can't even think of my brother ever came. Um, I didn't really invite or advertise that. I compartmentalizing things. This is my life. I would go home and see my parents, but I didn't really, I was looking to start my own thing. I wasn't looking to carry on the traditions from my home life or bring my home life people over there or anything like that. I showed my mother around the co-op when she was in town one time. I thought it was kind of kind of neat and wanted to share it with her. Yeah. What did she think? She's very reserved. She didn't say much of anything, but I think she thought it was was fun. Nick, the guy that we've spoken about, had three siblings, two of which came by the co-op at various times. It was pretty common, I think, for you to see somebody around and you might ask somebody, who's who's that? Oh, I'm so-and-so's sister or so-and-so's brother. I feel like that wasn't a rare thing. Awesome. So let's get to some controversial events and how they were resolved or not resolved. Or... Yeah, I'll 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 tell the story and and I'll you know keep it keep it fairly high level. Um, there was a, a person at the co-op who was uh, you know growing a, a popular plant in their room uh, using grow lights. And this is something that some people in the co-op were aware of and others weren't. And it came to light when one night, one of the lights, uh, which was on a timer, the lighting system or something was being rearranged. So this light, you know, uh, was set on a vinyl couch when it was off. Uh, it was on a, on a cord. And so in the middle of the night, when, when this, this person was not in the room, uh, the timer did its thing and the light came on and it set the vinyl couch on fire. And uh, the, the smoke, the smoke really happened early morning. It was, it was light and people were just starting to wake up. And I remember hearing the commotion in the hallway. There was an effort to put it out, which was probably a bad idea because you shouldn't go into a smoky room with a fire extinguisher if if you're not a, if you're not a firefighter, right? So that was not successful. I actually was the one who called the fire department, and I was very naive. And what I what I said is, I called nine one one, and I said, "Look, we've got something in a room that's generating smoke, and, and it doesn't seem to be a serious fire, but we need somebody to go in and figure out what's going on uh, with proper equipment." Well, you know what I wasn't thinking about was the fire department can't rely on civilians to judge how big of a fire something is. So they entered that address into their computer and I'm sure it probably came up as, you know, a university boarding house. 
And at that point, the only response the fire department can give is 100%. So they had the hook and ladder truck. They had a couple different trucks and, and, and lots of guys. Everybody evacuated the, the, the house. And, uh, you know, the firemen went in and a few minutes later pulled the smoldering couch out onto the front lawn. You know, it was sitting there smoldering, you know, for the rest of this, this event. And by that time, the police were there. And I remember seeing one of the firefighters talk to the police. And the police went in and the police came back out and asked for this person by name. And they were part of the group that was standing out on the lawn watching all this. It became obvious to everybody then what had happened. And it was a big deal because obviously that building, it's an old building. For some people in the co-op, it made them think about the space and what it means for everybody to be kind of working together for, for the safety of the co-op. I think I think there were some hard feelings about the fact that this was ultimately about an activity that not everybody in the co-op would have approved of. Was this a discussion that was mostly happening in, uh, at, at the time or did it come mostly to a board meeting? Everybody was talking about this event, of course, for you know weeks after. I remember there was discussion among people in the house, including board members, about whether we needed to, to make this person leave. How would an eviction have taken place? Would it be voted on? I would imagine so. There was no evictions that I remember when I was there. Oh, that's great. All, all of the situations uh, were somewhat similar to the one I just described, which is, you know, e- either because of something somebody did or because of a, a longstanding, you know, non-payment. The person involved always sort of saw the writing on the wall and left before a formal eviction. Mark, what would you say? I think the subject definitely came up at board meetings. It was discussed but the subject coming up and the and the topic being discussed at the board meetings was enough of uh, a message that we didn't have to go through the process of that I can recall. Again, I'm going to agree with Ian on this that we didn't have to go down to you know uh, city hall or or do something you know formal. I, I do remember some some contentious board meetings that were a fallout of that incident you were describing, Ian. The person being really embarrassed and remorseful, but not really expressing it very much. Uh, they kind of let some other people speak for them because there were, there were other people involved. Like Ian mentioned, like Ian said, there were, there were people that knew what was going on and there were people that didn't. So there was a division of people that were like, this is about freedom or others saying, well, this is about safety, right? In, a, in very rough terms, I, I think you could draw that line. Yeah. I don't know if they would have said freedom uh, or something like, you know, uh, an, an alternative way of thinking or a way of living habits or, or, or participation in, in terms of being part of uh, a counterculture that was challenging the established norm, seeing that as valuable. And then there were other people who were like, no, we need this to be a, a safe place. We need to, this to be a, a place that has a good reputation that are people are going to want to move into and bring bring their friends to. You know, on some level, we have to deal with the inspectors too. I remember uh, the president at the time being really upset that 
this put us on the radar of the fire department. And now we are going to be (laughs) constantly suspected and this does not help our cause. Interesting that you say that because when I moved in, one of my favorite memories was Mm-hmm. A guy named Egan and other very talented co-opers playing folk music around a fire that we had out in the, in a, a movable pit. And every almost every single time after a certain point, the fire truck would roll up and be like, you need to put that out and make us and stand there and watch us put it out. Oh, really? Wow. And Maybe I, it dates <laughs> from, <laughs> from the co-op being on, on their radar. Who knows? I also just have to say that that particular weekend that that incident happened, I happened to be home visiting my parents. I came home like probably late Sunday night and this thing that had happened earlier, heard about it secondhand. You know, if we had had known about it, we would have put the kibosh on it, so to speak, you know, uh, much earlier and not let it get to this point. So, you know, there were divisions and factions in the house this is the way that you would expect for a group of say 30 people. We had some conflict with one of the frats. As I recall, one of the frats was having a party and apparently they had been throwing bottles onto the sidewalk on University Avenue. And somehow the police became aware of this and yelled at them and made them clean it up. And they weren't happy about that. And uh, they believed that we had called the police on them. And I don't think it's true. I think at the time I I didn't, I wasn't aware of anybody who had done so. The next day, late at night, remember I was in the TV room, uh, a bottle came through one of the front windows of, of, Oh no. And, and sort of stuck, you know, those are big two pane windows. And I think broke one of the panes and ended up kind of stuck in the window. Somebody, you know, really felt strongly that it was this frat that had done it and walked over to the frat and knocked on the door. And the response couldn't have made them seem more guilty, which is that they turned out all the lights and didn't answer the door. So they were knocking and knocking and and it was obvious people were in the house, but nothing really came of it. Several months later, they did come to us um, with an alumni and maybe they needed our cooperation or something for something they wanted to do. And this alumni was with them. And and they came to a board meeting, actually, and, and, and we said, you know, we're not really inclined to, to cooperate with you guys because we feel we don't have a good relationship. And the alumni made a point of saying, you know, that some bad apples had been uh, removed from the fraternity. Uh, Mark, you remember, you remember this? Yes, I do. I forgot about the bottle incident. That, that, that same frat, well, they shared a parking lot with us. And at a party, somebody had been sort of parked into the the front of their parking lot next to their building and and couldn't get out of their parking lot. And so drove a, a vehicle through that narrow alley between uh, us and the frat. Remember this? And then across, do, yeah. and across our lawn and then across the lawn of the engineering frat over towards the corner. They were unpopular with everybody for that. And they had to go by this sort of a gas meter thing that comes out of the side of the co-op in that alley. So a lot of people said, you know, this could have gone very differently. It's Holy not someplace. That, yeah, not someplace that anybody was ever supposed to drive. There was there was one time when we were being contacted by a person who was trying to get us. It was a lawyer who was trying to get us nonprofit status, 
And he had done a whole bunch of work uh, filling out the papers so that we could start soliciting donations from alumni and, and make a lot of money. I don't know who had kind of given this guy the green light um, to do this um, or, you know, uh, if, if, it, if, it, if it started with a, uh, this, this person and we agreed to it or if somehow it, it kind of was an idea of somebody that lived at the co-op or some version of the board, maybe even dating back to the 80s. But this guy had done all the work and to get us nonprofit status. And it was thousands of dollars and he was sending us bills and we had discussions at the board meeting with how to handle this. We just pay it um, and then tell them to go away uh, or do we challenge <laughs> it in some way? How do we deal with this? And I remember you, Ian, making a fairly strong case for just ignore them. He doesn't have anything to stand on. <laughs> and um, I think we just, kind of said, you know, don't call us, we'll call you if we need any more help. And eventually it stopped. But um, that was kind of a, a little bit of a scary issue, because I felt a little bit like we were being preyed upon. And it definitely put a bad taste in our mouth on the subject of going down this nonprofit possibility, because a lot wow. of the fraternities and sororities had this status, and we didn't. And we had to pay taxes every year. So the issue would come up every once in a while. Why don't we just become nonprofit? All we have to do is offer a scholarship. Yep, that sounds you know? dang familiar. By the nature of the co-op, you've got young people. And when we had to work with outside professionals, most of the time it went great. You know, we had CPAs and other people that helped us. But if they were inclined to take advantage of the co-op, it was pretty easy because it was a bunch of young people. We had a contractor that redid the floor of the third floor bathroom. And that was a big job. Tore out the entire floor down to the, the joists and redid it, you know, had to had to get the subfloor and the floor and the tile, put in a new tub, uh, do the wiring and lighting for the second floor. Well, the one funny thing I remember about that is during that time, I don't know what we were supposed to do during that time when the floor was completely missing, but I think we just had like a sign on the door. So you could walk down the third floor, oh hallway, my open, open the door to the third floor bathroom, and you'd be looking down on whoever was sitting on the toilet in the second <laughs> floor bathroom. And that, that was sort of a bad situation. Or we just uh, had to be careful that somebody in the middle of the night, half asleep, didn't try and go to the bathroom and go into the bathroom and then fall through the floor into the second floor. Anyway, at, at the end of the work that this guy did, several of us had concerns about the work he did. We had to call him back several times to finish things that we felt were unfinished. Uh, I don't think he did a great job, but there was really nobody in the co-op with the confidence to say something like, you need to tear up this tile floor and redo it correctly. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's a good lesson to future residents. The, the co-op in these situations should have some sort of ally, some construction person that, that acts as an advocate, or, or they should have a long-term attorney who handles all the legal things. So you're not engaging different people at different times. A lesson for alumni probably is, is you know, cultivating and maintaining these professionals that can serve the co-op as an institution, despite the fact that the actual customer, the, the co-opers are coming and going all the time. That's something that alumni could do to improve the situation at the co-op. 
Thank you for that. Do you know who's responsible for the urinal? Funny, there was no urinal there when we were there. And I remember I suggested it once and uh, no one thought it was a good idea. Okay. Well, it ended up being poorly implemented, and removed, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just leave it at that for now. What, what bathroom is it in? It was the second floor bathroom. No idea where that came from. Was that there when you were there, Mark? I'm unclear. I'm not going to say one way or the other. I do remember that third floor bathroom project. We took out showers in the third floor and we installed the bathtub, right? We got rid of showers and we put a bathtub in there. Yes. Um, And during that time where we were down to two bathrooms for 30 people was very difficult. And I remember a lot of times particularly in the morning, waking up, having to get to class or get to work. And there's a line for the bathroom at least once. I'm sure this happened more than once. I really had to go to the bathroom. So I went down the block to the Newman Center and I was using the bathroom at the Newman Center because we only had two bathrooms. Oh my and, gosh. And, that, and, that, and the Newman Center, I don't know if that was there when you were there, but that was like the Catholic Student Center, basically. We had, there, were, there were a couple of women who lived at the co-op who worked in that cafe one, one year. Um, we had Jeff's uh, Last Supper down in the basement. Do you remember that, Ian? Were you ever there for Jeff's Last Supper? Oh my gosh, what? Okay, Jeff's Last, he was moving out of the co-op. Everybody loved Jeff. And so we were going to throw him this big go-away party. And the other thing about Jeff at that time, he had long hair and he had he had a sort of a, a scraggly beard and mustache. He looked like all the pictures of Jesus Christ. So we decided we were going to throw this party for Jeff at the Catholic Center. And we invited him and we called it the Last Supper or something like that. And we placed him in the middle of the table. And then we all sat around the edges of the table and we were passing him food sort of pantomiming the da vinci's last supper painting in honor of jeff he caught on to it and and it became kind of a a fun memorable event and a a joke you know you know i one point i remember the discussion about putting that bathtub in the third floor bathroom yeah yeah There there had been a shower stall there and i remember it because i watched the guy remove it you know, it was uh, original to the building. And when he took the floor apart in that area, what a shame. The, the pan that sort of contained the water in the shower stall was made of lead. It was a sheet of lead. Really? Uh, yes. Apparently, that's the way they did it 100 years ago. But it sort of contributed to the sense that it was a well-built building for its time. We had a discussion, and I think this was at a house meeting and there was a, a woman who was an advocate for putting a tub in the third floor and her point was it's nice to take a bath every once in a while and i remember really <laughs> i don't think anyone in my era would have agreed with that they'd be like at a bath at the co-op yes that's and- gonna be pretty grimy yes and and i said in the house meeting you know this is uh it's not gonna work for this group, you know, it's not going to be clean enough. And you can't relax in a bath with bubble bath and candles because someone's pounding on the door to get in. It's just not <laughs> something that works for this situation. We held a vote and the bathtub won. And so that's why that tub is up there. Thank you so very much for that. So that pretty much leads to 
whatever you want to share now. Um, sure. I was thinking, I'll ask Mark, what do you think makes a good co-oper? Wow. I would say number one would be a sincere commitment to the group. Back off from your own personal wishes and and look at the, the health of the organization and what all of your other housemates want. That would be the main thing. You, you have to perhaps do things that you didn't have to do when you lived at home with your parents. Or it could be kind of the opposite, backing off from some standard that you had in your family. You know, like, you know, Brian is probably a perfect example of that person I brought up earlier. This guy who's he was amazing. I mean, like his his standards of cooking, his standards of cleanliness, his his standards of interpersonal communication, but he had to kind of like back off to the idea that, well, a lot of students need a car, you know, so we're going to have to manage the parking lot or some people just don't have the time to do their, their house job as well. So they're going to do a passable version, but they're not going to go the extra mile. So he had to kind of like back off a little bit, but in both those cases, you know, it's like the person's looking at the bigger group thinking outside of themselves. And I think that's a, probably the primary prerequisite for being a successful co-oper is looking outside of yourself, you know, and even looking down the road a little while, like, can I leave, is there, a, how can we leave the co-op better than, than we found it? And trying to create systems of institutional memory um, or organization that can be copied by other people that are going to come in later that don't have the experience. And this podcast is kind of like a perfect example of that. You know, this is a, a great service to the co-op. I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I remember getting a phone call uh, from work uh, on the September 11th, 2001. The first floor house phone rang and I think I was sleeping and I went and answered it. And it was my coworker at Freewheel um, who never called me at all. He was an older fellow, um, very important person in my life, actually. He was one of the founders of Freewheel. His name is Bill. And he said, I just wanted to call and tell you that the two planes hit the world, the, the trade towers in New York. I don't know quite what he was expecting me to say, or if he was going to say, don't bother coming into work or what he was, he just wanted to call me. I think maybe I was late for work and he was wondering where I was, but in any case, I said, I was speechless. And I just, I said, thank you, Bill. And I hung up the phone. I'm sure I put on some pants before I went out in the TV room, but there <laughs> were, you know, probably 10 or more people in the TV room watching the television you know, with live footage of the burning towers. And we were all just dumbstruck, you know, and it was just kind of like this collective sort of confusion, fear, anger. You know, it was just a whole weird combination of emotions. And, you know, the, the weeks after that were, uh, very, you know, emotionally charged. And, and so I experienced that event while I was at the student's co-op and I was very glad that I had <clears throat> uh, a lot of people around me with um, their ears to kind of an alternative narrative 
uh, in a way, like I remember <laughs> one of the people who lived there at, at the time said, I, I, you know, I think Osama bin Laden's name was being floated around like they somehow knew he was behind it even pretty early on. And somebody was positing the idea that the, the American government knew Osama bin Laden's relatives who were in America. And within hours of this happening, they were on a plane out of the country. And I was like, there's no way that the American government would allow that to happen. There's no way that, that there was that level of collusion or protecting protecting the enemy, I suppose, if you want to put it in those words. And I remember having a very kind of like an argument with this person. Well, I think it pretty much comes down to this person was right, you know, and the relatives of Osama bin Laden were on a plane out of the country back to Saudi Arabia. And the Bush administration was kind of protecting the, the, the family or the relationship with Saudi Arabia, even though they knew that that's where it came from. And um, so there were a lot of debates. I remember there being a lot of debates around the time that Jesse Ventura got elected to as the governor of Minnesota. And there was some pretty contentious arguments in the house between people who were kind of like, no, we need somebody to shake it up, you know, and other people, I guess I would count myself in the, in this group who were just like, we cannot have a professional wrestler in the governor's mansion. <laughs> no. Huh. And so, I mean, I remember putting up a lot of articles on the wall myself down in the basement, editorials and whatnot. And then of course, to, you know, the, the 2000 election with uh, Bush v. Gore and the way that ended, that was highly contentious. A lot of debate before that election too. So it's kind of you know, nice and reassuring to hear that there was disagreement in the house over all these issues, actually. I don't know yes. if that makes sense. Yeah, there, there, there definitely, from my viewpoint, there definitely was. Uh, it was a, it was a healthy disagreement to the point where we, we talked about issues. I remember, I remember having a lot of <laughs> kind of arguments with Barb's brother, Rob, who's a lawyer now, actually, really, and he's a super smart guy. Uh, but you know, he was just like, oh yeah, Ralph Nader is fine. And I was like, no, no, it's splitting the vote. Why is he campaigning in Florida? He wasn't supposed, that's the swing state. So we had all of these like, you know, theoretical uh, arguments or whatever debates, but we were, you know, we were civil about it and we were housemates in the end. And, you know, we had our meals and we did our work weekends and, I have a I have a good memory of how to agree to disagree, you know, live together with different viewpoints, different value systems. The polarized society we live in now is that on steroids. And, you know, there may be a lesson there. Somehow we're going to need to live with Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell as Americans, even though there's very valid arguments that they're treasonous and that's their behavior sometimes you know living in south minneapolis i feel like i'm several layers within the bubble i don't know about you in seattle ian but i mean i'm i'm in a super progressive neighborhood within a progressive city within a progressive state and i feel like i'm a lot out of touch with a lot of the rest of the country and so sometimes i'm i'm looking for more you know disagreement or viewpoints that i see around me all the time and you know and maybe yeah. 
maybe my looking for that disagreement, I don't have to go very far outside the metro area to run into Trump town. You know, I mean, I, at the same time, there's not the critical mass of, you know, a conservative view that you might find if you go down to even go down to Iowa, you know, or uh, one of the Dakotas or Texas or Florida or Arizona or Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama. I sometimes I, I crave a little bit more um, diversity in opinions than I have where I am right now. Uh, Thank you but I also that. know, I know, I know it can be kind of a, you know, a dangerous thing as we see right now. I mean, our democracy is really threatened. I think one of my big takeaways from my time at the co-op is patience with people and looking for the best in people and focusing on outcomes and not process. A specific example as house manager, you really want to tell somebody, here is how you do halls and stairways. You start here and then you do this and then you do this. And it doesn't work. People are going to do stuff the way they do stuff. And you've got to be able to say that there's a standard of cleanliness and you've got so many hours on whatever it is, Tuesday night, to get those places to that standard of cleanliness. And that's it. That's the limit of your control. It's in the interest of the co-op that the hallways and stairs be clean, but you can't tell people how to do it. And that is a lesson that is important with family and with coworkers. If you're managing people, if you have a kid, uh, I was an only child. I didn't have brothers and sisters that I had to learn to get along with. So these were tough lessons for me, but um, they've been really important. Mark made a comment earlier that, you know, you, you, you sort of look at your life and, and peel away later on the onion and, and the co-op is there underneath. And I certainly feel that's true for my life. Thank you so very, very much again. And thank you for your words of appreciation for the co-op and for my humble project. Thank you so very much. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again. Oh, it was fun. Yes. Thank you very much, Maxine. And thank you listeners for being with us for another hour. I hope you enjoyed all those great stories. If you have stories, experiences, or memories of the Students' Co-op and you'd like to share them, please reach out. You can reach out and check out show notes from all our episodes at podcast.studentscoop.org. Next time, we'll go back even further to learn what happened to co-opers in the early 1980s. It's going to be interesting. Happy trails! Happy trails!